Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 67. This week's feature review, Gamer FAQs, board game designers. Have you ever wondered what people are talking about when they're talking about board game designers at the table? Well, this week you'll find out everything you need to know, plus during our final round, board game designers designing your life. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. This week, we got a brand new feature for you. We call it Gamer FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions About Tabletop Gaming. On this episode, we're going to give you some insights on board game designers. So maybe those are those situations where you're at the board game store or you're sitting down at a table or you're at a meetup or you're at a convention – and the next thing you know, everyone's throwing out all these different designers' names, and you're just like, um, I, 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 I like games. Games are fun. <laughs> so sometimes some of this stuff can be intimidating, can be over your head, and we want to bring that down, break it down for you, and give you some information to let you know when those names start flying around what they're actually talking about when they talk about board game designers. We'll also have our Shattered from the Tabletop, our Acquisition Disorders, our At the Table, and our final round, which is which board game designer would you want to design your life? Not your life, our lives in reference to board game designers. So feel free to tell us about your lives. Yes, and that's another thing too. We love hearing from you. So one of the th- new features that we want to have come up pretty soon is we want to have a listener feedback episode. Now, we've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of different sources. Some of you post on Facebook. Some of you come to BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Some of you come to our guild on Board Game Geek. Well, we want to continue having that happen so that we can pull together a large amount of information so that we can actually have a feature, bring all of the comments and questions and ratings and reviews on iTunes and bring it out and have some general discussion and fun about that. So until we get that episode up, please send us more questions, more issues, more comments, more criticisms, more concerns, and all the love you can so that we can talk about it on an upcoming episode. (laughs) If you're going to criticize me, I've already heard it before, so go ahead. (laughs) No, but seriously, we love all your guys' feedback. Um, We take everything into consideration. So even the criticisms, especially related to the podcast, half the stuff we've done to change format, update quality, change equipment, all that stuff is because someone out there said, Hey guys, this particular thing sounds funny, or these levels are weird, or I use these kind of headphones and it doesn't sound right, and then we fix it. So it's awesome when you guys tell us that, because maybe we don't notice that right away. But yeah, it's it's awesome to get your feedback. Uh, I check this stuff constantly. I get a little notification on my phone for every tweet or retweet or reply that you send me, even if I'm at work, and it gives me an excuse to stop working for a minute or two and look at some poor game tweets. Just shoot it over. We'll we'll take it into consideration. And uh, if you have questions or cool comments, we will share those with the world. And as we always said, this podcast is about connecting with you, creating a larger gaming family, and bringing everyone to the table. So let us know. Hit us up. 
And at an upcoming episode, I would say within the next five episodes or so, we'll have an episode about all listener feedback. Now, with that said... Shout it from the tabletops! Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Yes, we got some news. It's not my feedback, but I'm going to tell you about some of the feedback we get from uh, some interesting media sources about board gaming. The Guardian, one of uh, Britain's leading magazines. Daniel, you remember them from last week? And they're, they're, oh, still, yeah, yeah. they're still churning them out. Can you believe that? They are still putting out. They had a really good article last week uh, called Blood on the Living Room Table. And it was about Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones board game. Really uh, interesting. It's a it was a sophisticated approach to the game. That's what I like. If you hear something on NPR or some bland American media source, it's always about basic games, nothing too sophisticated. But the Guardian knows good games, and they know how to discuss them. And it showed the complexities of Game of Thrones. It obviously, was tied into the uh, the new season of Game of Thrones. But it talked about the complexities and the rewards from playing the game. It does a really good job of telling people that there's something more than Monopoly out there. And i got to give credit. Every time they put out an article, Guardian really does a great job. Another source that puts out some really good board game articles, The Examiner, examiner examiner.com. They had an article, Chris, you might might really like, 10 signs. Oh, here it is. 10 reasons why we won't fund your crowdsourced game. (laughs) Yeah, I had a whole podcast about that. So <laughs> yeah. they, they mentioned some things they probably stole from you. I'm sure they uh, did, which is fine because there's a lot of reasons not to fund Kickstarter campaigns, despite the fact that I always want to fund them. Yes. <laughs> many, many more than 10. Well, anyone that gets the word out and, and makes people stop and think. One of the best articles, one of the best reasons in that my game is different than everyone else's. I mean, of all the games you've seen on Kickstarter, how many of them have really been different? Two. Like unique. <laughs> just two. That's only that's all it's been, just two. Well and another it. thing is how different do you really want the game to be? I like most of the games I've played. <laughs> if you go too different, I'm not gonna like it anymore. Yeah, really the best games are something that, that takes a familiar mechanic or theme and finds a new angle on it. True, what you're saying is true. I I know having watched way too many Kickstarter videos, the, the videos are always really funny because they talk about these innovative mechanics like card drafting, tile placement, worker placement. I'm just like, oh, God, guys, come on. Heads up, if there's a standard name for it in the industry, it's not that innovative. No. Or every iteration of Cards Against Humanity, which they think is so witty and and spicy and just yeah. okay they, they the examiner did steal that from you chris that was one they of their did, ten, I'm telling ten reasons you. they swiped it god you so gotta it, you gotta check them out and sue them if they uh stole from you so you're saying their content wasn't original even though they claimed it was original drew <laughs> yes <laughs> okay then so they, they're right on task then that's it <laughs> hey one of the um, game companies i've been following real closely idw i talk about them like every other week they're releasing their very first fantasy game uh, in July, called Awesome Kingdom, The Tower of Hate Skull. And if that title tells you anything, you know it's going to be a satire of the fantasy genre. And and that makes me think they're also burrowing into Steve Jackson's niche uh, with their lighthearted uh, parodies. Um, IDW is a company to watch. I'm just really impressed with their marketing, marketing plan. If you like them so much, Drew, why don't you just marry them? <laughs> why don't I buy the company? You might as well. <laughs> 
um, keep an eye out for their games. I mean, anyway, one other game, it, it's really making, draw, trying to draw me back into the RPG world, and that's uh, Numenera. Is it Numenera, Chris, or Numenera? Numenera. Numenera. Okay. Potato, potato, Numenera, Numenera, same thing. Um, it, it's really, uh, that, that's a different kind of RPG game, but what they're creating, uh, they're going to be releasing a, basically a book called Weird Discoveries. It's a book of instant adventures, which simplifies the job of GMs. You know, the main reason that I haven't jumped back into Dungeons and Dragons with both feet is that I used to be a, um, a dungeon master. I used to do all that. Then you took an arrow to the knee, Drew? <laughs> no, I retired. Oh, okay. Daniel, you can still uh, throw yourself into it. I'm, I'm impressed with you. It, it was a wearying task, but... It can really drain you. Newman Era promises to simplify the whole thing. Basically, their aim is to set up an RPG adventure in the time it takes to set up any old board game. That All you got to do is look, you know, look at the... Is the GM can look at this for 10 minutes, get it all set up, get ready to go, and you can play. What yeah, board game are they playing that you can set up in 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah. A love letter? Dead of winter, obviously, Dead of Winter. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I think it's Monty Cook's involved with Numen- uh, Numenera, and he is uh, probably the most influential role-playing game designer, living role-playing game designer oh. around at the moment. Sorry, and, and you know, there's a fair chance he might be able to pull this off. There's been a recent push in role-playing games towards ways of reducing the bookkeeping aspect especially on the dm uh and there's a whole series of games called the uh, like apocalypse world and various riffs on it which are made to be like cooperative narratives almost to uh, to an extent where the gm has a role and it they do get to determine certain factors beyond the players but the players generate a huge amount of the content in some really innovative ways and as we get better at this it it uh the, the challenge is to uh, keep the balance between producing interesting and novel content and lightening the load. Because if it gets too light, then you just have a lookup table for random adventures, uh, which are going to be very superficial. But do you think, well, if, if Cook is really a, a master at design of uh, this, maybe he can pull it off. Do you think it's like a, a way to break into the mass market? creating a, a an RPG that that ordinary people can get into easily. Yeah, I think these games have been very uh friendly to new players. Uh, another one that's that's up there is Luke Crane's uh, Mouse Guard, another one that's very friendly to new players, a little bit less so than the Apocalypse World sort of games, though it's got a maybe a friendlier theme to it. By taking the burden off, keeping the bookkeeping low, and making it easier for GMs, you not only make it easier for new players to get in, but you also make it easier for groups of players where just nobody wants to be the GM for the next two years, right? Where every week when you get together, that's the person who's been doing homework all week. Whereas you guys are just here to hang out. Uh, some, it's, it's hard to get that person to volunteer sometimes. So who knows? Man, Maybe they'll make it lighter. This, listen, this, this will get me to volunteer. I will jump back in if this really works. Uh, I do want to check it out. Um, one final bit of news for this week is probably the biggest bit of news. It's award season. It's always exciting for us. It's the Origins and Dice Tower Awards uh, this week both announced their nominees. The, the Origins, as uh, belies its origins, is very heavy on miniature games. Most of their awards are uh, for miniature games, one form or another. 
But uh, they have a pretty solid lineup of games for the best of the year. Abyss, Battle of Five Armies, Cash and Guns, Dead of Winter, Sheriff of Nottingham. Any any clunkers in there? Or do you think they're all um, solid nominees? They all seem to be either alive or undead, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're all fair options. I think that none of those are really you know weak links. Now, Dice Tower doubles the number for its game of the year, has 10 of them. The only the only game that appears on both Origins and Dice Tower lists is Dead of Winter. Is that a sign that uh, it's going to sweep? Yes. Probably. Really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it did well at Spieldus Yaris. It did well for us. Uh, and I, I would be surprised if it did not continue to do well. So if we held a fantasy draft of, of nominees... Uh, the winners of the the Dice Tower Awards. You think Dead of Winter would be the number one draft pick? Everything I've seen thus far, man, I think it's destroying it. Wow. Well, it did win our t- 2015 Tabletop Madness Award. Mm-hmm. So if if we did have a fantasy draft, probably whoever picked Dead of Winter would would win that anyway. I thought it might be fun to do that, but not if they're going to if that one game is going to win all the awards. It's not going to be <laughs> fair to the rest of the players. You never yeah. know. I mean, Splendor won the Golden Geek. So. Oh, my God. That is true. <laughs> Anything can happen. And well, Star Realms if... has sold a few hundred thousand copies. So. Yeah, that's huge. That was huge. That's one of uh, Dice Tower's top ten. Yeah. Uh, they're ten finalists. So maybe in a future episode we'll, uh, we'll review some of the Dice Tower awards and pick our winners. All right. So now on to our Acquisition Disorders. And now our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders, that's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much. But maybe, I don't know. Maybe Now, I have a really interesting Acquisition Disorder, and I'm not really sure if it should be an Acquisition Disorder, but let me tell you a little bit about it. Now... I had the opportunity not too long ago to play Spartacus. I believe it's Blood in the Sand. Now, this is based upon the Stars series about the legend of Spartacus and had Lucy Lawless in it. And it was, you know, critically acclaimed, really graphic violence and nudity and stuff like that. And obviously it's about slavery and so really kind of strong dramatic themes playing the game itself is a little more toned down obviously the game itself is pretty simple there's a little bit of a euro mechanic in it where you're purchasing slaves that act as a resource in order to give you resources in order to purchase other slaves which are gladiators and then once they're in the gladiatorial arena they will battle it out in a very type of mirror clash way where you one die kind of controls the movement and one die controls the defense and one die controls the attack and it's pretty interesting because as the two combatants are going back and forth other people will be able to bid or kind of like wager on the battle so they can wager if someone gets injured or hurt or killed or decapitated very much in keeping with the theme now as as you can hear the theme is kind of dramatic and a little bit rough and you know the theme is a little rough here and there so i played a short version of this and i was like "Ah, i like some things about this but 
I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a fan of the show, and the theme is really not my thing. And I generally don't like these ideas of like purchasing people, obviously, and slaves to kill themselves, and you know, in order to get money and stuff like that. And then recently, WizKids announced that they'll be releasing X Men Mutant Revolution. Now, what's interesting about X Men Mutant Revolution is basically it's a reskin of Spartacus. So, for example, the market deck becomes the recruit deck, the plot deck becomes the intrigue deck, and the heroes are equal to the gladiators, and instead of slaves, you have students, and so it's basically the same type of game, and instead of having, like, a house card, you'll have one of the the mutants, one of the X-Men, or you can have Magneto, you can have Cyclops, you can have Wolverine, you can have Storm, so you have these four different heroes who are recruiting schools of fellow mutants, training them, and then, I guess, battling it out a little bit as far as, you know, who will control mutant kind in the future and things like that. So it seems like an interesting game. It's nice that this game has been reskinned. So if I really do like this mechanic enough, I could probably pick something like this up. I got a chance to see some of the photos at the Gamma Trade Show for this game, and it's kind of on the line. It's a WizKids game, so it has some nice painted plastic figures, but at least the very few pictures that we saw seem to be the highest quality, more of a hero click type of quality of paint job here, and the components seemed probably even a little bit less so. So, as I said, an interesting situation where Spartacus had some good mechanics. X-Men Mutant Revolution will pick up those mechanics and, you know, give us a little Marvel Universe type of, you know, battling back and forth. So it might save Spartacus for me. Maybe it's an acquisition. Maybe it's something I purchase as long as WizKids kind of does a good job with it. Why would why would they take a game that I enjoyed and I did enjoy Spartacus a lot mm-hmm. and ruin it by making it about superheroes? Because uh, <laughs> that's the greatest of revenges, Drew. <laughs> Another superhero game. How many how many people uh, did you play Spartacus with? I think we played with five on that game. It was a it was you a played it with much, five. We did. Yeah, yeah. They, it is better with more people. Yeah, I mean, the opportunity to wager against other players and the combat is actually pretty interesting and building up a house full of people and guards and the your house has a special ability. So there's some really interesting mechanics here. So yeah. I'm glad that it has a different theme so it can be you know, widely available to a more broader audience. But I'm a little, still a little concerned on WizKids production here. But I don't know, maybe they'll pull it off and maybe I'll pick it up. Well, or at least pick up Spartacus. I know in Daniel, when you got Spartacus, I think every time I came over, it's like, can we play Spartacus? Can we play Spartacus? Still on the raft one of these days. I just wonder, who played Spartacus and went, you know what this would be great as? A game about the X-Men. Like, who made that connection? Who figured that out? Who decided that? My guess is that there's a guy who goes around whose job it is, is to look at all games and say, could this be good with the (laughs) X-Men? WizKids has got a whole fleet of those guys out there. I think it's what just, can we reskin with superheroes? There's a paste. There's a guy. There's a guy whose job is just to paste things. You know, throw <laughs> up against the wall, see if it sticks, and and maybe this stuck for some reason. Oh man! All right, Drew. How about you? Anything on your acquisition disorders? Me? Well, like like you, I'm wondering about whether this fits here. It's not an acquisition so much as a disorder. I want to play this game. Um, 
maybe you've heard of mega games. Those are not really games you can play on a tabletop. Maybe you can. You know diplomacy, right? The kind of game that diplomacy is. Imagine that you're in a, a large room or, or suite of rooms uh, where there are 30 people playing diplomacy instead of five or six. That's what a mega game is. It's uh, basically one game, one great big theme with uh, a number of teams involved playing off each other. The, the current one that's really been making the rounds is called Watch the Skies. If, if you know the Shut Up and Sit Down guys, uh, their podcast, they talk a lot about it. They had some good videos about their experience with the game. And it's crossed the pond, made it to New York City, and uh, next month it's going to be in Boston. And I would love to make a trip down there and, and join that. Watch the Skies is basically built around an alien invasion. So you have a team of players playing the role of aliens with a hidden agenda. And then you have a bunch of the, all the other players are in teams playing other nations of the UN and they all have their own agendas. Do they want to fight the aliens? Do they want to partner with them, steal their technology, science, uh, medical? There's all sorts of different levels going on in this game. That's what makes it a mega game. And it goes on for, for hours. It's fascinating. If you've always loved diplomacy, <laughs> but uh, wanted a different theme, this is a great opportunity. I, it's going on in Boston. I th it's probably already signed up, but you can certainly go watch. Uh, just look, uh, look up Mega Games, watch the skies and uh, on the internet and learn more about it. I can't wait for it to come back to New York. So at what point does a diplomacy mega game become indistinguishable from Model United Nations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Backstabbing and yeah, it comes with all of that. A model United Nations game, it has to yeah, it has to have that large kind of scale to be a mega game. Yeah, I mean, if it just feels like you're just playing Model UN now, so why not just play Model UN? Like, just do that. Oh no, there's a whole. I mean, there are people who created this game and who moderate it, and uh, they'll tell you what the results are of your actions. And mm. it has a much larger scale than just UN. You're you're actually interacting with alien species with their mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out what their agenda is. You're trying to make alliances with them or alliances against them. Um it's it's a whole other dimension. Mm, very cool. Yeah. We gotta do it guys. If it comes around, we gotta all join a team and get in that game. I wonder if uh Gen Con might have something like that, Drew. Large scale I know they do some large scale games. We have got to look that up. Are we going to Gen Con? We are going to Gen Con. <laughs> All right. Then we will check it out. Sounds good. All right, so that's our acquisitions disorders this week. Now let's see what's hitting our table. And now at the table with BGA. All right, so BGA got some games to the table this week. Uh, yeah, so I am just a few I don't know, decades behind the time when it comes to this one, but I finally got to play Lords of Waterdeep. Most of you have probably played this game a number of times, and it's a little bit of a personal shame that it took me this long to get to it because I love D&D everything. Uh, and it is ostensibly a D&D theme, but really not really. It's a worker placement game that takes place in a D&D style universe where you place workers to complete quests to get points to win the game. Pretty familiar model. Uh, and it plays like many of these sort of 
worker placement games do play in general, these sort of mission completion, task completion, worker placement games. Uh, so if you played any of those, you'll pretty much know what Lords of Waterdeep is. Uh, I think we had a pretty good time playing. I played it with Chris and Anthony, uh, and it was a pretty fun time playing it. At least I had a pretty fun time playing it. Though I do have to admit that just with the course, the core game, it got a little mindless after a while, right? It It is on the end of simple to the point of being almost immediately instinctive kind of game. So there were relatively few turns where it felt like there was much of a decision to be made. More often than not, I felt like, oh, yep, that, yep, that, mm-hmm, yep, that. Uh, which is nice because it meant low downtime, but it also meant that I felt like I was making relatively few interesting decisions. Uh, I don't know. What did you guys think? Well, it's nice getting a fresh pair of eyes to a game uh, we played before. I like work. I like worker placement games. It's the um, the quests that I think is more of a complication than need be. There's there's an awful lot of reading and straining to read what the options are for the quests uh, that are available and what other people are, are going for quests. That that sort of muddles the game for me, but not enough to um, obliterate the the really cool worker placement mechanic in this. Yeah, totally. This is one of the uh, earlier worker placement games I played when I got into the hobby. Not that it's that old of a game, it's just that recent that I got into the hobby. And I've since moved on to bigger and more complicated games in the genre, one of which is the expansion to this game, which we actually reviewed in our very first episode. And it's it basically takes anything that might rub you the wrong way about this game, uh, at least in terms of complexity or variable variability of play, and kind of fixes it and enhances it. You know, obviously we're talking about the base game here, and I, I'm kind of with you on this one, Daniel. I don't think it's a perfect game, but it is enjoyable. I enjoy it every time I play it. Uh, I've never had a situation where it was like, man, I wish I hadn't played Lords of Waterdeep. It's fun, but it's not its not a brain burner either. So if you're really looking for something that's going to test you and force you to come up with a unique strategy and constantly tweak it and adjust it based on what other people are doing every round, like most good worker placements will do, this isn't quite it until you add the expansion. Yeah, I really do want to play the expansion. From what I've heard about it, it seems to fix pretty much everything that bugged me. And I mean, I mean, it only bugged me a little bit. I did have a good time playing it. I just was kind of, I wasn't sated by the play, right? I was like, oh, this is, this is okay. Yeah. All right. But I see what you mean about it plays itself, that sometimes the moves are so obvious that you don't really get a chance to stretch your mental muscles. Yeah. Yeah, it's, what it does, it does right, and what it does is pretty basic. It's set collection. You're going to get those quests. You have to get the right number of cubes. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're not Dean Deeples, but you're getting wizards and rogues and such. But you just, you know, you get the quest, you get the cubes, you complete the quest, you get the victory points. There are some mandatory quests which kind of mess with people. Some of the buildings have some, you know, interesting opportunities for you to pick up some additional resources, and the entry cards give you some opportunities as well. But beyond that, it's it's a gateway game, especially for people who are not board gamers, but maybe be RPGers and maybe Dungeons and Dragons fans who might be like, "Hey, I recognize this flavor text or this character in here, and that's really interesting." And oh, a worker placement game, I like that. So. It's a solid play, but as everyone was saying, it doesn't do too much more. I will say that while the expansion does add more to the game, I think that's only 
I think that's the only thing you can say about the expansion. It adds a lot more. Now, it does have that corruption board, the skull port board, which is a nice idea and a nice mechanic. But with the new lords and the additional cards, it can get a little muddled at times because you still might be picking up a regular quest where someone else is picking up this uber super duper quest. So they may have needed to actually release Lords of Waterdeep 2 instead of an expansion, I think just because some of the cards are and some of the lords are a little bit unbalanced from each other from the original set. But otherwise, a solid game and absolutely positively worthy of play. Yeah, I definitely would put it as a, a pretty solid play. I do think that if you're coming into this kind of as I was of, hey, this is a D&D game, it isn't. It is not. Just, no. just don't have that idea, right? Like, if you're a D&D fan, this is not a D&D game. Just, just don't think that. The artwork, because you'll be disappointed. The artwork is very nice. The flavor text is very nice. Everything is accurate with the D&D kind of realm. But beyond that, it's a basic work replacement game. If you strip the theme out, and honestly, you could strip the theme out. The theme has nothing to do with the actual mechanics here. So, yeah, it is what it is. And that's about it. Yep, yep. How about you, Anthony? What, what else did we get to the table this week? Um, other than our glowing review of Lords of Waterdeep. Which I is love, an awesome whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I love War. I, I really like the game. It's, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know, we've grown past it a little bit. It's, it is a solid game. It's you a, guys gushed about it. A year ago, you were gushing about that game. Oh, <laughs> shucks, Drew. That Lords of uh, Waterdeep, he's the nicest fellow in town. I you had an infatuation. You had a crush on Lords of Waterdeep, Chris. Admit it. Well, okay. like so many first crushes, <laughs> it was eventually found out to be a rather empty experience oh, and one you oh. moved beyond rather quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Anthony, how about you? All right. Uh, moving past Lords of Waterdeep. Awesome game. Uh, we played... <laughs> <laughs> no one's played... arguing that. <laughs> Stop. Just reiterating it. <laughs> No one's attacking Lords of Waterdeep. If we did, we would throw you a mandatory quest and let you deal with that. <laughs> All right, here Worst we go. Here we go, Anthony. Game. Here's a mandatory quest. Review a trick-taking game. Ha ha. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> okay, so next game, next game. Uh, same day, we played another game uh, that's been sitting on my shelf for a little bit. Picked this, up on, this one up around Christmas and been meaning to get it to the table forever. Uh, it just never quite reach the top of the playlist but it's uh it's one of those co-op games that's been around for a while a lot of people talk about it it's unique in a few ways and obviously a lot of things have come out of it and that is ghost stories from anton bauza um this is a game that i've seen around many many times i've heard a lot of people talk about it um and what kind of what i thought was funny and I'll, you know we'll get to this in a minute but kind of what i thought was funny is every time i've heard somebody talk about it it's how hard it is and how brutal it is and how much you get destroyed in it which honestly is like every conversation about every co-op game i've ever heard unless it's a bad one we actually did pretty well in our first play of ghost stories but to be fair we did play like the intro level of difficulty so i don't think we were you know we didn't set ourselves up to be destroyed but we certainly weren't destroyed could easily see where it happened though there was a couple moments in the game especially towards the end where if a roll had gone just a little differently or we pulled just one different card we would have lost just right there 
but we did win the first game. Normally, that to me, that's not a good sign of a good co-op. In this case, I don't think it's a problem just because there's so many ways to ramp up difficulty. The game, you know, without running through all the mechanics and, you know, everything you have to do, basically what it is is you have a grid of nine village tiles, and then you have four boards around that grid, each with three spaces for ghosts. Everybody, you go around the board, and no matter how many people play, up to four, you're going to have all four of those boards. Some might be neutral boards. So there's three of us. We had one neutral board. And some might be player boards. But as you draw cards, those are going to be ghosts. And they're going to go to whatever color matches that card. Unless it's a black one. And then it's just going to go to whoever drew that card. Lots of mean stuff these ghosts can do to you. They can haunt your tiles. They can send tormentors, which involves a curse die. They can force you to draw additional ghosts. They can lock down your dice so it's harder to defeat them. Uh, and you're just basically going to run around the board with your figure trying to exercise these ghosts. The goal of the game being get rid of all the ghosts so that you can take out the big boss bad guy um, by the end of the game, which you you know when he's going to come because you place that card at a specific point in the deck. Um, it's the... Not quite the last card. You, you'll count out 10 cards, put the bag, the, the boss in there, and then the rest of the cards will go on top. And that's the only way you win. There's a lot of ways to lose. You can, if, you, if the deck runs out and you haven't beaten that guy, you lose. If all of the players die, you lose. If three of the village tiles become haunted, you lose. And we almost lost in a number of different ways, but we managed to, to balance it out. I was, I was interested by the game. I don't think it's the strongest co-op I've ever played, but, you know, this is a game that's seven or eight years old at this point so there's been a lot of good co-ops that have come out since then it is very nice to look at it has great artwork thematically it works I, I feel pretty well uh, i like the idea that there's always those four boards out there and the neutral boards don't take a ton of extra effort to manage they make for a unique addition and you know the way that it can scale and difficulty is pretty intuitive it doesn't become fiddly at any point to set up so I had fun. Uh, I definitely a game I think I'll play again. I'm interested to see what the expansions offer. There's a couple of them, just in terms of growing it out and adding some new mechanics. But, you know, as a fun thematic co-op, I thought it was a good entry. Anthony, tell me that this isn't just a, a Asian spin on Arkham Horror. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's definitely unique. It's, um, you know, it takes a lot from the, the Chinese ghost story genre of, you know, obviously, there's a lot of history and lore to the, the Chinese ghost story that that um, this is based on. But there's also a lot of Hong Kong and uh, Chinese movies that I, I saw in college that kind of fit the same theme. <laughs> so that was kind of what attracted me to it in terms of theme, um, which seems to happen with most of Bowser's games. Like he, he picks on those themes, but I think it's unique in its own way. All right. I mean, this was a theme and a game that I was really excited for. And I'm usually a very big fan of co-ops. And I gotta say, I was kind of just disappointed with Ghost Stories. Now, again, we've only played it on an easier mode, so maybe at a more difficult level it gets more engaging. But I'm not sure that was the problem for me. It wasn't so much a difficulty issue as just, again, it was a very simple game to get a hold of, almost too simple. I was like, all right, well, these are the things that need to be done. And you could make it more difficult, but that still wouldn't change that it's still immediately clear what needs to be done. You just might lose because the odds are stacked against you now. But that won't, you know, make the uh, decisions any more interesting or the play any more satisfying in that regard. So I was a little bit disappointed by Ghost Stories, actually. I, 
I'd probably suggest someone play it because maybe they'll really like it or maybe my experience was still, you know, anomalous, but only barely and half-heartedly. I would put almost any other co-op game before this on the list. I was really looking forward to playing this game. I, as Anthony said, everything I heard about this game was it was going to murder you the entire time and then even after you put it away, you were going to have nightmares about this game. It was so brutal. And even though we did play the introductory game, as Daniel said, it's pretty simple, the choices that you have to make. It reminded me of, obviously, Pandemic and Yurg Dasil, where the cards come out and then the board kind of spawns up with these monsters. And you have an opportunity to make the game harder by putting additional monsters. And depending on the ghosts that come out, they close down certain areas. And we've seen this in co-op games before. I don't fault this game for that. This game has been around a little while, so it's understandable that some mechanics we've seen again and again now at this point, it sets up very nice. The artwork is beautiful. The miniatures are really nice, especially the little Buddhas. The actual figures is kind of weak. I was really surprised how weak the figures were, but it's a nice co-op. I don't know. I, I kind of... I, I like so much about this game, but it does in, a, in some ways remind me of Lords of Waterdeep, which is it's a really good game, and I would be happy to play it at any time, but I think I've played it, and I don't see many things changing. And I know that when you put some additional big baddies in this game, the tiles that you're walking around are actually going to have more to do with how you win the game. But, you know, anytime that you're randomly pulling cards from a deck and they're filling sections and when they overrun, bad stuff happens. I don't know. It seems a little less dramatic when it's just a very small board. When you're looking at Defenders of the Realm and there's all of these bad guys already on the board and there's more bad guys moving and they're marching and you see these swarms. Even like Pandemic where you have these swarms of these viruses all around the world. It kind of gives you more of a feel of the dramatic tension, where Ghost Stories, you only had a couple of kind of hauntings and creepers coming out there, and the artwork was outstanding, but I don't know. I, I, there's just There needs to be something more to this. I'm not sure what it is yet, but once again, another strong play game. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, I, I think I agree with both of you guys. Um, I fall more on the play side of it, but it's not kind of as complete of a co-op experience as some of the other games I've played. But, you know, again, that said, there are a few expansions here that I want to check out and see if they kind of um, ramp up the decision-making opportunities, um, kind of bring it up to par with what we see in more modern co-ops. I uh, I was intrigued, though, so I'm, I'm happy to own it. Um, and at the very least, we'll probably pull it out and tr- give it a try solo and see how it plays like that. Um, but, yeah, fun game. And uh, while uh, not mind-blowingly uh, unique in the genre... A solid entry, at least. So, as Chris said, it's it's very much like Lords of Waterdeep. A solid entry, kind of entry level ish. Lots of games do the same thing a little bit better, but you can't fault it for that. All right, so that's our at the table. Now on to our feature review. <laughs> And now, BGA's feature review. For our feature review this week, we wanted to bring you some information about things that you might be hearing at the tabletop, in particular, game designers. So for our tabletop gamer frequently asked questions, this week, we're going to talk about how and when game designers come up 
what they mean by, oh, this is a designer board game in comparison to, let's say, mass market games. Where do you look for the designers on the box? And who are they? And when people are talking about this game is like so-and-so type of game, what exactly does that mean? And why would anyone even say that? So with that said, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by board game designers. Drew, why don't you take it away? Well, Chris, you know, there was a time not too long ago. In a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) When there was no such thing as a board game designer. It didn't exist. Truly. They were called board game inventors way back when. And if you talk to people in the toy industry, um, even today, the people who create toys, they're still called inventors. For some reason, game inventors, their name changed to designers. And that's because there used to be a middleman in the, the process, a game developer that worked for the publisher. And even large publishers today like Hasbro. Uh, Mattel, they have developers who take games created by obscure designers toiling in their factories and develop them for the mass market. That's how it worked even for the best inventors back then. They had a great idea. They play tested it and took it as far as they could, turned it over to a publisher who then shaped it for a specific audience. But somehow that middleman disappeared over time. There's no longer a game developer. And the upshot is we have half-produced games being thrown up on Kickstarter all the time because nobody has shaped the game. Nobody's developed it, uh, perfected it. And even today, the more games and expansions there are, the more quickly they're developed. uh, I mean, the more quickly they're rushed to market. And a lot of the great, there's a lot of great innovations. A board game designer designs games largely by inspiration nowadays. It's an art today, not a science. So it's theme-driven. So many games are all about having the right theme. And they'll even, so far as to force the theme, paste it on a game. And that's why there's fewer themeless abstracts today. The abstract's gone. Inventions, inventors, were fueled by imagination. Inventors would picture a final product and build toward that. That's why inventors, both toy inventors and game inventors, often have engineering backgrounds. It's science, not art. And NYU's Game Center, the home of its brand new BFA program in game design, it grew out of the school's engineering department. So I hope there's a trend back toward engineering games. I want to see the the name Game Inventor come back and replace Game Designer because I think it's a cooler thing. I would love to meet a game inventor, someone who's proud of what he does and creates something new and fun and exciting. And the best of the designers today do show a good grasp of construction. They know how to build a solid game. But without a game developer, the designer has to decide for himself where his market will be. Uh, And you basically have two choices, a niche or mass market. There's There's a big difference in how these two Markets treat designers, treat game creators. So in particular, board game designers, while they may seem like these epic heroes that are multi-million, if not billionaires, because you see their games everywhere and they're always in the table, these are usually mom and pops. These are just regular people, just like you and I, who love board games. And when they design a game, 
typically they're designing the game from scratch or maybe they're using some mechanics that they've used before or something they've developed or a certain genre or theme. But basically, they're creating this game probably in their house, developing all the mechanics and the artwork, bringing people in. These designer board games are kind of crafted at home. These are home-baked goods a little bit. These are not something that is kind of like a formula that's done in a factory. So when you open up one of these boxes, you're not just getting a product. You're not just getting, you know, some interesting pieces, some toys, some little glittery bits. You're actually getting the heart and soul of of a designer who has spent years developing this game, hundreds if not thousands of playtesters, revisions on top of revisions, in order to bring something to your tabletop. So it is really kind of a bit of an honor, and it's such an interesting experience that when you open a game, sometimes you don't even think about the title of the game. You're like, hey, man, we're going to play a Feld, and that means something. You don't even have to look at the title. You're like, ah, it's it's this game or it's that game. It's like we're going to play a game from this designer, and it's really like they're writing a story here. They're the author of this game, and you're entering this world And it's a complex, beautiful, wondrous world that they're taking you into amongst everyone at the table. Everyone's kind of joining in and and taking part of this narrative, even if it's just an abstract game. But it's a big difference between a game that, that we're all familiar with, the kind of games that we discuss, niche hobby games. Yes. Versus the mass market games that really do make a lot of money. For the big companies, not the designers, but it makes it for the big companies. How does a designer know what's best for him or her to, to try to find a little uh, niche? Well, I think every designer wants that type of big box mass market exposure. They want to get their game out to the world. Their creators, their inventors, their designers, their artists, they want to get their art out there, board games as art. And I think a lot of these mass market games, I think if we look back historically, they were invented. They were created by someone who really did care and love them. And then what happens over the generations, and honestly, it is generations, is that a company will just kind of Xerox this game over and over and over and over and over again to a point where the images, the Xerox image is so far and so distant and so devoid of life from the original creation of a monopoly or the original shoots and ladders, which is thousands of years old, that it loses the specialness to it. And that's one of the things that designer board games bring you. There, there's something special, unique, and alive about that game. It, it, it's different than an, I don't know, I guess you can call them evergreen, uh, an evergreen game like monopoly that just never dies generation to generation it it becomes a part of culture and people buy it and play it simply because their parents and grandparents did whereas designer games are are something special to a particular generation and they're just not automatically handed down they're they're passionately played and sadly some of them get lost get forgotten over years undeservedly Absolutely. It's it's definitely, you know, your mom making chocolate chip cookies from scratch in comparison to buying a bag of generic cookies at the store. I mean, 
the recipe is still kind of there, but it's been so mass marketed and overproduced and refined and pasted on themes and stuff. It's just, it doesn't really taste the same anymore. And when your mom passes away, her recipe and the way she made them, that passes too. Sure. There's a big loss. Yeah, these designer board games that we're playing all the time, they're a unique point in history. And we're that's why we do have these acquisition disorders because we do want to get these games to the table. We do want to get these games as part of our collection because it's a social interaction based in a world and a context. And, it you know, the board game has its own history. I played this game with... Daniel and Anthony, we had this type of time and we survived the hordes of ghosts that came in and we had such a great time and he did this and I did that and we won the day. And it's just that game is charged and the game, you know, is different now. It's special. It has it has a uniqueness that a monopoly is just unfortunately never really going to have anymore because of how many times it's been produced over and over again. In different skins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you're looking for designer board games, one of the things we want to point out, one of the main things is you'll get the board game and you'll look at the cover and it has the great artwork maybe and it has the big title, but look carefully. Sometimes it's not hard to find at all, but the designer of the board game will actually be on the board game. Now, this sounds crazy, but if you take a look at your Monopolies and your Scrabbles and all of your other games, you're not going to see the designer on the box. That says something very special. That says something very special about the industry that we love so much that they do respect and honor these inventors when they create these great games. So just look at the box cover and you'll get an idea of the designer and you'll get an idea of what type of game is inside. Yeah, now, who, made, who made Scrabble anyway? Nobody knows. I'm not sure, but I'm sure it was like a triple letter score, so it was probably for a lot of points, whoever did it. A bunch of Q's and Z's in a row. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think one of the more interesting things here, too, when you're talking about, like, mass market versus designers and, like, having the designer's name on the box is one of the reasons the mass market games are different is that they're created by a corporation as a marketing vehicle. So it's not the entire idea of the game, even if it's something that was you know, invented a hundred years ago and was possible even a good game is that it's been refined and revised and optimized and polished to present it to a mass market. You know, that's the whole point of it, of these big, you know, billion dollar conglomerates is they're trying to make money, obviously. Um, so to them, the most important thing is whatever is going to reach the widest audience, um, whether that's building the newest board game uh, based on Twilight you know, volume six, vampires, whatever. Um, <laughs> I love that book. Sparkle Moon 3. I don't know. <laughs> the Revenge. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter if the game's any good because the marketing is, look, characters from this movie you like. Boom. Uh, it doesn't matter who the designer is. And one of the cool things we've learned over the years is that some of the designers we really like have worked on some of those games and their names aren't on them. Um, whether they want them to be or not, but it's the the market the the industry kind of crosses over in certain ways you don't always see above the water. But in the end, the quality of the game, you know, of a mass market game, has less to do with how good the game is or how much time was spent building it or how much time was spent playtesting it, and more to do with how many people are going to be interested in this beautiful box cover and how many stores will carry it yeah. because we have this massive distribution channel. Um, the designers kind of get to build the game they want to build it 
you know, and whether they go to a publisher and that publisher kind of helps them refine it and test it and tweak it a little bit, you know, they build that game and then they take it to the, the publisher and say, hey, will you publish my game? Not the other way around. So that's one of the huge differences. It's not, yes, yeah. these companies like Asmodee and Fantasy Flight and all those guys, they're marketing these games, but they're not, you know, it's kind of like the difference between a Francis Ford Coppola movie and a Marvel movie. Those movies are designed years in advance with a story in mind to promote. And while they are good, they're very, 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 very polished. They're promoting um, the brand yeah. more than anything. Yeah, and as you say, they, they're just a vehicle to sell a theme. So I know that my cousin really likes that TV show. And look, there's a game you know, with that TV show theme. I'm going to buy that for them. Not knowing that there's not even a game in there, but that's all I need to know, right? Uh, the, to follow what you were saying, Anthony, um, a great example of the difference between the two types of markets, the mass mass and the niche. Um, they're not mass market companies are not interested in inventors and their inventions. They buy up ideas and then polish them as a marketing tool, like you said. And the best examples are Scrabble and Monopoly which were not invented they were just rewrites basically of much older games and they figured out a way to market it and make money but scrabble came from anagrams monopoly came from the landlord game there's nothing new there whereas game inventors modern game designers like you said they're going to go to a company and say make my game not your game hmm. so and there's those are the people we're celebrating right now so that being said, let's talk about those actual designers. So when you're at the tabletop and people are throwing around some board game designer names, we want you to know exactly what that means. So some of that is those designers created certain games that everyone plays or just outstanding games. Or sometimes those designers create certain mechanics that are used over and over again. So instead of describing a mechanic or instead of saying a worker placement game, you might say, oh, this game is just like an Uwe Rosenberg game. And that kind of that information set right there tells you all that you need to know about that game. So, Anthony, why don't you start us off on some designers and generally what do they mean at the tabletop? Yeah, totally. And, you know, we're not necessarily going to cover everybody. So if we miss somebody you guys think is, you know, critical to the hobby, we're just kind of covering some of the people that we personally connect with or feel kind of embody certain areas of gaming. Um, there are a lot of good designers out there, far more than we could cover in this segment. So, you know, please, please, please share in the comments, tweet at us, whatever it is, you know, let us know who you think really embodies what we're talking about and, you know, kind of some of the games that you associate with them. But, you know, just kind of my blanket disclaimer there, if we missed one, not on purpose, just covering some highlights, um, the... I picked out a few that I feel definitely embody certain types of gaming experiences for me in the last few years, especially that resonate, especially in, in the way I game. And there's a few more that I know you guys are going to cover. So, you know, I might chime in too. <laughs> there's a few people that I really like the work of, but um, these ones are really cool to me too. Uh, you know, top of the list for me, Friedman Freeze. I, I like everything this guy does. Power Grid is one of my favorite games, uh, hands down. And while there's a lot of things about it that have been refined and improved upon in other games, um, this is one of those original, uh, you know, it, the game's 10 years old now, um, going on 11, and it's it did so many things uniquely that are still being done today. 
Um, and there's so many ways to play now. It's been refined and updated and, you know, optimized with all these new maps and now the deluxe edition. Um, and that's really cool to me. Like, it's just, it's just a unique game that really speaks to me uh, in terms of thematically speaking. It's it's a Euro, obviously, but it's, it's got some fun bits to it. it. It takes a little bit of it tweaks the mechanics that maybe you're used to in terms of, a, you know, the map and the, the route building that goes along with the, the act of building out your power stations. And more most importantly, it takes kind of a boring theme and makes it fun. It Freeman Freeze is always kind of pushing the limit of mechanics that we know to create something new with them. He does that with Friday, which is a solo deck building game that people play that game hundreds of times trying to beat the top difficulty level. And this is one of the true solo games out there. Um, if you play solo, you should definitely own this game. And his newest game, which isn't out yet, but I know he's been showing it off and people have been playing it in certain places, uh, 504, looks ridiculous. This like I can't imagine anybody else even attempting this, let alone pulling it off. Uh, I'm eager to see how it plays, but the the idea of 504 variations based on all these different modules and somehow making it work in a randomly created game is uh, a little mind-blowing. So that's something like Freeze would do. A couple more guys that really kind of have their own uniqueness. Uh, Mike Fitzgerald's been on a roll lately. Uh, we know Fitzgerald for his card games. Everything he does is a card game, but it always takes kind of a unique twist. A uh, couple of my favorites lately, Diamonds, one of the biggest games of last year. Uh, and this is a trick-taking game that I love, so you know that he knows what he's doing with cards. Baseball Highlights 2045, another game Fitzgerald worked on. Um, another unique twist on uh, the card game mechanic. It It is a very simple, very quick one-on-one uh, -on -one card game, you know, little six-minute games, but he finds a way to put it together in a way that you can kind of build this one-hour experience It feels like you're playing baseball in the future with robots. It's awesome. Matt Leacock is another one where if you say his name, people think, you know, accessible, but challenging, very expandable, cooperative gaming. You know, this is the guy behind Pandemic. This is the guy behind Forbidden Island and for Forbidden Desert and, you know, a lot of other really good games uh, in this space. And he's kind of pioneered the modern movement in uh, co-ops. Um, and these are just very tight, very unique, very fun games that you can just keep building on because they're so strong at the core. And then one last guy I wanted to touch on who's been kind of blowing it up in recent months uh, and years, really, is Eric Lang. Um, now, Eric Lang's big uh, release last year was the uh, Marvel versus, uh, well, the really Dice Master system in general, because now they're up to four different sets. Um, but over the years, he's done a ton of stuff. So he's, you know, been, you know, XCOM, the board game. That's another one I picked up recently. Um, uh, the Dice Master sets again, a uh, couple um, cool mini or not games. And recently, Chaos Ball and Arcadia Quest. He worked on the Star Wars card game. Um, he worked on the Game of Thrones card, you know, all those card games from Fantasy Flight. So he's been involved with a lot of the uh, kind of modern movement of Americlash games. Um, and kind of marrying theme with mechanic and kind of tweaking mechanics and making them unique again. Um, so, it, you know, when you say Eric Lang, you think, A, it's going to be thematic. Uh, it's definitely an Americlash game. It's going to take uh, a relatively simple mechanic and make it more accessible through theme. And it's going to kind of build on that in new and exciting ways. So, like, the Quarriers mechanic that he came out with in, like, 2011, you know, revised that with Marvel Dice Masters, and then further revised that now with Dungeons & Dragons Dice Masters, which adds a ton of new cool stuff to it. So he's been on a roll. It'll be interesting to see what he comes out with this this year. 
Um, but those are four that I thought were pretty cool. If you say any of their names, at least in our circles, uh, you know what kind of game you're getting into. All right, Daniel, how about you? There are three designers that came to mind for me when we were thinking about this question. Uh, and the first of them is Steve Jackson. I uh, probably don't need to say much more about Steve Jackson. Describe his style to you than to remind you that he created Munchkin and all of the Munchkins. What Steve Jackson does is he creates these really charismatic, very thematic, simple, highly interactive games. Munchkin is really the paradigm of it, and it's their flagship product, though he has been involved with other projects. Uh, so when you play a Jackson, you know you're going to be doing probably a little bit of backstabbing, uh, probably a little bit of pile on the leader, uh, but it's going to be a simple and highly interactive game. Usually they're a lot of fun, though those more uh, seriously minded gamers, the people who really want a brain burner, uh, they tend to sort of look down on Steve Jackson games. I don't think that's fair. I think they're well designed and I think they're good for what they are. I mean, you just have to remember that the target is for, a, you know, a simple screw you kind of game. Uh, so that's Jackson's games. I think he's really, I mean, he's one of the most influential designers out there right now. And he's also got a line of role playing games associated with his work. Uh, which is also very fun, not super concerned with balance, but just a great fun ride. A little hard to take seriously, like a lot of his work, but you're not supposed to, so that's fine. Uh, the second one that really jumped out to me is, is Seiji Kanai. Uh, and for those of you who don't know Kanai, he, his most famous work is probably Love Letter. Uh, and again, this is going to be a really good paradigm of what Kanai does, which are these... Typically micro games, things you could put in your pocket that are very deeply thematic, usually pretty simple mechanics, but they are, uh, in a way that Jackson's games aren't, meticulously designed. I don't think I've ever played a Kanai game that I didn't feel like every possible burr and rough edge had been sanded down to perfect smoothness. The games tend not to be very complex, though those games that uh, Kanai develops. They tend to be very simple and that there's just a few rules. Uh, but the way that the rules are set up tends to make for a lot of replayability and a lot of exchange between players in a, I think, pretty enjoyable way. His other games include things like Kitty Mages, again, another micro game where you're going to be mostly playing on player interaction with a minimal rule set that stays out of your way and doesn't trip you up. And that's one of the things that I really love about Kanai. Right? I don't like a game that gets in the way of me playing it. And none of his games will do that. Uh, and finally, the one that uh, the last one that jumped out to me was Rosenberg, UA Rosenberg. Uh, and there are really two kinds of games that UA Rosenberg has done. The first is Agricola and all versions of Agricola and Caverna, which is essentially Agricola 2.0. Um, you know, Agricola, bigger, better and uncut kind of thing. And so he's really got these sort of if you were going to be mean about them, you'd call them farming simulators uh, worker placement-y games. Uh, and they're, to me, actually the paradigmatic worker placement. Uh, these are the ones that I, I think of first when I think of worker placements, and I'm pretty sure that's not just me. And then there's Bonanza, which is totally a different game, a set collection card game that is, seems to be something of an exception for him. I don't know if you guys have that same perception, but to me, it looks like almost all of his games are in the exact same genre, which is the Agricola Caverna worker placement genre. Uh, and then there's Bonanza, which is just, you know, doing its thing in the corner there. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, okay. I love Bonanza. It just doesn't feel like a Rosenberg game. I, if I if I played Bonanza and I looked at these three people and tried to figure out who made it, I'd probably go with Jackson. Yeah, it's funny. Here's a here's a guy who, at a very young age, one of the first games he designs creates a classic. It's an evergreen game, and then he like turns his back on it and says, "I think I want to do something else." Yeah. I don't know. I mean, unlike Jackson, who said, hey, people seem to like this Munchkin thing. Let me make 458 versions of it forever. But, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. People like those 458 versions of it. Yui Rosenberg sort of backed away from Bonanza and really focused his effort on Agricola-style worker placement, hand management, card drafting games. And those are really what are indicative of the Rosenberg style. Uh, So there's a little bit of a trick there that if someone says, we're going to play a Rosenberg, don't think Bonanza, right? Think Agricola. It's the same sort of was if you hear if you hear hoofs, don't think horses. Think or don't think zebras. Think horses. If you hear Rosenberg, don't think Bonanza. Think Agricola. Uh, that's what you're gonna end up playing, probably. Uh, sort of a worker placement game with usually an economic agricultural twist. Most of the games I've played by him tend to be in that zone. Yeah, so those are uh, those are my th- yeah, Daniel. I think what you said is true, especially for Steve Jackson games. His games are so thematic, and the man just loves and cares about his games. As you said, he gets some flack for Munchkin, which I do love, and it's it's a sad thing because he incorporates every possible element with theme. If you take a look at Ogre, this was a game that actually cost him money on Kickstarter to produce, but he wanted to produce the complete game with all the wonderful bits and parts and multi layers to it. I mean, this is a huge, crazy size of a game and he just wanted the game to have everything. And I think that's what you're going to find true with a lot of designers that they really do love and care about their games and they do put everything they can into them. Now, some designers that I wanted to bring to the table are designers that you're going to hear a lot about. Now, some of them are for their actual games. So let's talk about Anton Bauza. Now, we've talked about him quite a great deal, especially in a recent versus Takonoko versus Tokaido. You may have also heard us talk about him in reference to Seven Wonders, a game that we all love. An outstanding card drafting game. And even in this episode, we talked about Ghost Stories. Now, if someone's talking about a Bowser game, they're talking about a game with high-quality components, beautiful artwork, good entry-level type of accessibility that brings everyone into the game, and fun, really just fun, absolutely fun types of games. You may remember Rampage, or actually its new title, The Terra Meeple City. So that was another Bowser game. Now, once again... Not Maybe not the heaviest of games before, but if someone says they're going to play a Bowser game, you want to keep your eyes open for that. And especially with Bowser games, especially with Seven Wonders, multitudes of expansions, and even Tokonoko is going to get an expansion. Tokaido's getting a Kickstarter Deluxe Edition expansion, which I can't wait for that to come out. But in all, high quality, lots of fun, brings everyone to the table. Now, another opportunity to actually bring everyone to the table on a different situation would have to be Stefan Feld. Now, we've talked about Feld a lot. We're Feld fans. Now, you probably hear us talk about Feld in in reference to point salad games. So if someone says to you 
that this game is like a Feld or this is just this is a hardcore Feld game. They're talking about being able to play a Euro game that is I wouldn't say it's 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 definitely not a gateway game, but it's definitely not the heavy, heavy democker type of games. It's a good, solid, weighty Euro that's going to allow you to score points for pretty much anything that you do in the game, which is actually nice because sometimes when you're playing Euros, you spend so much of your time trading one resource into another, into another, into another, that you're actually not doing much of anything. But with a Feld game, you're actually doing a number of different things that are going to score you victory points throughout the game and give you a sense of how your engine's running. So a Feld game is going to be a game that is heavy on mechanics, somewhat light on theme, but it's a lot of fun if you're a Euro gamer. Now on the deeper side of Euros is Matt Gertz. Matt Gertz is best known for his Rondell mechanic. He's created games such as Imperial, Antica, Hamburg, and the brand new Concordia, which is getting a lot of gameplay. But his original games are really well known, especially Imperial 2030, for the Rondell. Now, the Rondell is this big, large circle on the game board that's cut into wedges. And depending where you start and depending where you end, you'll be able to take an action. But you have to complete that full circle to get back to those original areas. So you really do have to plan in advance. It's a very smart, a very interesting mechanic. And all his games really give you a great feel of playing an outstanding, deep-thinking game. So if someone says that this is a Gertz game or this is a Rondell game, you're in for a really good time, but it's going to be on the heavy side. And then finally, I wanted to talk about a new designer, but I believe a very important designer, Jamie Stegmeier. Now, Stegmeier is probably best known for his Kickstarter campaigns. He had Viticulture, Euphoria, Tuscany, and the recent Treasure Chest that recently popped up, especially a new Kickstarter with, I think, three Treasure Chests that are out there currently. Anthony would know about it. He's already backed all of them. So um, he's best known for these Kickstarter campaigns because he understands the market. He understands the promotion of the Kickstarter. But most importantly, he understands what gamers are looking for. And when someone says that they're bringing a Stegmeier game to the table or they talk about Jamie Stegmeier, they're talking about someone who com- truly and completely understands the industry, understands gamers, and really wants to bring a high-quality product to the table. He is not messing around, my friends. He is bringing solid gameplay. So recently they talked about a new game that's coming out in the future. Not even We only have one box cover, and this game is Scythe. Everyone is super excited about this game. Why? Is it because they have pictures of the miniature or they have the rule book? No, it's because Jamie Stegmeier is involved with this game. And that means so much when you're sitting down at the table that you know that designer really cares about gaming and really cares about the gamers at the table. And right now there's no one better than Stegmeier as far as designing a game for gamers. But that's the new guys. What about you, Drew? Anybody from old school? Well, funny you should ask. Most of the guys, I would say almost all of the designers you guys have talked about, they're going to be remembered long after they've stopped designing, long after they've passed from the scene and gone on to the great board game in the sky. 
And there are three designers that I want to remember. I want people to remember who have uh, passed away a number of years ago because their games are still being played. Their games are still respected. One of the games that everyone of a certain age, including me, has played, um, Avalon Hill games, war games. Uh, I played Gettysburg as one of the very first games I ever played. War games don't get a lot of love anymore, but it's something I think almost all teenagers have played uh, at one point or another. Gettysburg was uh, was a classic. It was played originally on squares. Now it's played on hexes. It was designed by a man named Charles S. Roberts, who actually created a number of landmark war strategy games, Tactics and Tactics 2. He came up with a very simple, uh, a very elegant mechanic of uh, using chits little pieces of cardboard, square pieces of cardboard, instead of expensive miniatures. I mean, the British were playing war games all the time with their tiny little miniatures marching around the floor and marching around tables, yet he created games that everyone could play uh, straight out of a box. He created a company to sell those games, Avalon Hill. And though it's now owned by Hasbro, it's still churning out some very high-quality strategy and war games. Great designer. He's still being played. And they even created a series of awards in his honor of historical war games that uh, even today, Charles S. Roberts, uh, another designer that we've played, we may not know him, Alex Randolph. He was a designer of abstracts for the most part, and yet he could create so many different types of abstract games. One of his last ones uh, back in the 90s, I think 99, was Ricochet Robot, which uh, is sort of a puzzle game something that uh, everybody could play together cooperatively to uh, find a solution to. And yet he was creating games back in the 60s for 3M when this manufacturing company was trying to create some sophisticated games for the game rooms of the day. He created Twixt. Very simple, yet elegant, abstract game that uh, I played a lot when I was young. It still can be purchased in the game store. Twixt, very simple. Alex Randolph, another name to remember. And then finally, the name that everyone should know, every board game player should give a moment of silent thanks before each game. And that is Sid Saxon. I think he's the greatest inventor of all time because of all the people that we have named and all the styles and, and all the categories that we can fit these designers in, Sid Saxon defied categorization. He defied it thumbed his nose at it. He created games in so many different genres. He was a man who studied games, who played games, who loved games. And he was an engineer. Just like I said, he knew how to create a great game. He took notes. He, he collected. Uh, he lived and breathed games. And he created one of the greatest finance games, and it's still being played and still loved, Acquire. That was also part of 3M's bookshelf games, along with Twix. And a couple decades later, he created another game that's still being played today, Can't Stop, one of the greatest push-your-luck games, uh, dice games ever made. Uh, he created so many other wonderful games that we still know and play, and I think I would love to see an annual convention of playing nothing but his games. Um, these three men, along with many others long forgotten, deserve to be remembered. There's one other person I wanted to mention who's still inventing games, and I hope he doesn't get forgotten because he's a real good one, Chris Berm. 
he's a Belgian designer of abstracts. And that's a very simplistic way of saying it because what this man does with an abstract game, through his GIF series of games, and it's spelled G-I-P-F, he elevated the abstract game to a work of art. Now, I'm attracted to a good theme. I love a theme. It draws me to a game. But really, I know that most games are just abstracts with a thin veneer of theme overlaid. What Berm has done is strip the veneer from a game and lets the abstract's natural beauty shine through. He's an artist, a master uh, of that craft of uh, games. And he's someone, please don't forget, Chris Berm. Those are my favorites. I do also want to include Reiner Knizia, but I'm going to save him. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about him a little later. Back to you, Chris. All right, so hopefully now you got an idea of when these game designers' names are batted around at the tabletop, exactly what that means. It's the reverence that we have for the designers, their great inventions, their crafts, their designs that they bring to the table, the fun, the enjoyment, the brain burn that they give us, and an opportunity to talk about our hobby in new and interesting ways. So hopefully next time you're at the table... This will make a lot more sense to you. So with that being said, now on to our final round. And now, our final round. And for our final round tonight, of course we're going to talk about board game designers. But which board game designer would you want to design your life and create a game based on your life? And I was saving Reiner Kinesia for this moment. I've enjoyed his games. He creates mostly two-player games, so they're intimate. And I, I could get into that. Wouldn't mind having a partner in my life. Two-player game would be perfect for me. He, he designs mostly card games. In fact, there are some people who think he designs the same game over and over again, but that's actually an advantage. Uh, his kinds of games, the intimate card games, mostly linear boards where you're playing cards to move your men one side or another up the board, or you're playing it onto this linear board. But each game he makes is an interesting variation on a theme. Interesting variations I like in life. Uh, There's certain things I enjoy. I don't want the same thing, but I want a variation of it. And I would love to have more and more of those variations to keep it interesting. Kinesia, I think, does this very successfully. I would want him to design my life. What about you guys? Well, for me, it's it's just going to have to be felled because I want that point salad. I want everything I do in my life <laughs> to count like 10 times. I want to get just credit for everything. <laughs> I want my score at the end of the game to be in the hundreds, if not the thousands. So it's got to be felled for that. Well, I think for me, if I had to have a designer design my life, I think I want to live a multitude of lives. I want to live as many lives as possible. I want to live a multi-universe of lives. So that being said, I'm going to have to go with Steve Jackson Games because, as Daniel was saying earlier, he takes a theme, he takes a game, and he just blows it up to astronomical proportions and then just multiplies that universe 
seemingly a thousand times. So I want to live a thousand lives in a thousand different themes in a thousand different ways. So it's going to be Steve Jackson games. Basically, you want to be everywhere all the time. I want to be everywhere. I want to be a knight. I want to be in space. You know, I want to fight the undead. I want to be a cowboy. I want to be a pirate. Yeah, I want to be all of those things. Cool. That is our final round for today. So that's everything for this week. Be sure to keep in contact with us on Twitter, Facebook, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, Support us on Patreon if you think this episode was worth at least a dollar. And email us. We want to know all of your questions, everything that you want to let us know so that we can get together that listener's episode. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a seat at our Saxon-inspired, Stegmire created Jackson-themed, Feld-scoring game at the table. 